Heavenly Father, we're so thankful to be here again at camp meeting for this marvelous yearly spiritual feast. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be present at every meeting, anoint every speaker, every presenter, and may your name and your word be lifted up and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the, the study of the history of the Reformation is both inspiring and depressing. Inspiring because the Holy Spirit moved mightily 500 years ago, as we'll see as we go along. But sadly, there was, <clears throat> during the Counter-Reformation that followed, a lot of persecution, beheadings, people were burned at the stake because of their new faith. The established church prosecuted Protestants, the Waldensians and the... Uh, uh, can't remember the name now. French Protestants. Yeah. And uh, the sad part, the depressing part, is that Protestants even persecuted Protestants. So it's uh, it's both inspiring and depressing. I want to dedicate this seminar to the late Dr. Walter Kukkonen, that's a Finnish name, a Lutheran theologian who was my spiritual mentor <clears throat> and friend. To quote from the book of Job, he was my Elihu, who said, to Job, surely you have spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. And the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. When my, when my wife first became a Seventh-day Adventist, <clears throat> and I was in a dilemma, <clears throat> Professor and listened to me for two days I spent at his home. And after listening to me for two days, till I completely unburdened on him, he said to me, he said, Ray, you need to ask God what he's trying to say to you. He did not respond to me on the theological, doctrinal level, but on the affective level where my need was the greatest. And when he spoke those words, it was as if God himself had spoken to me because it virtually gave me his approval and his permission to investigate further. And I remember I drove from his home in Homewood, Illinois, to Andrews University. I was driving a Volkswagen camper and I parked in the seminary parking lot and I went in. My purpose was to just take a look and meet as many people as I could. And then I went home and the rest of the story unfolded. But many years later, <coughs> excuse me, he and I kept contact for all those years in between because, I, like I said, he was my friend. And uh, about, it was about 10 years ago, 
I called him on the phone. He lived in Minneapolis. And we talked for quite a while on the telephone. And his last words to me in that phone conversation were these. He says, I have concluded that this church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, that I had been a part of, is a Christless church. His word. And I thought about that because we hung up right after that, and I thought, I've ha I have to go down to Minneapolis and see him and sit at his feet and see, what do you mean by that? And I was making plans to do that when on Thursday of that week, I talked with him on Monday. On Thursday, his son called me and he told me, my dad died this morning. And he told me he wants you to do his funeral sermon. And the funeral was on Saturday. That was Thursday. I had two days to get prepared and drive down to DeKalb, Illinois. Unprecedented. A Lutheran seminary professor and theologian asking a Seventh-day Adventist retired seminary professor to preach the sermon at his funeral. So in my sermon, I told the story of his last words to me. And I said, we'll never know what he meant by that. But it does give us something to think about. So he says he's concluded that that Lutheran church denomination was a Christless church. How did that happen? It happened because sola scriptura, the Bible alone, was being abandoned. And when the, bird, when the word is abandoned, Christ is lost. Because Luther himself said the Bible is the cradle in which Christ is laid. Ellen White said this, God will have a people upon the earth to maintain the Bible and the Bible only as the standard of all doctrines and the basis of all reforms or changes. That's important. She says, the opinions of learned men, the deductions of science, the decrees or decisions of ecclesiastical councils, as numerous and discordant are the churches which they represent, the voice of the majority, not one nor all of these should be regarded as evidence for or against any point of religious faith. Before accepting any doctrine or precept, we should demand a plain, thus saith the Lord, in its support. That's from the Great Controversy, page 595. The theme of this series, this seminar, is taken from John chapter 1, verse 5. And it reads, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. As long as the light shines, the darkness does not and cannot overcome it. 
If you turn the light on in a pitch dark room, what happens? The darkness is dispelled. But if you turn the light off, what happens? The darkness takes over. Back in the 1960s, when I was still a Lutheran minister, <coughs> excuse me, and by the way, the Adventist church that I've pastored for the last 24 years is less than a mile from the last Lutheran church I pastored. And when I left that, when I left that Lutheran church, we had 600 baptized members. Two packed services every Sunday. Now they're lucky if they get 35 people to one service. Anyway, back in the 60s, I was attending a meeting of Lutheran pastors in the UP, and one of the subjects that uh, we were discussing was the interpretation of and the authority of the Bible, the Word of God. And I felt obliged to defend the Bible's authority. Imagine having had to do that at a meeting of ministers. And one of the pastors who was a recent seminary graduate, he came up to me and he shook his finger in my face and he said very vehemently, he said, the day is coming soon when people like you will not be allowed in the Lutheran ministry. Well, that event, with, together with the Vacation Bible School material for that summer in that Lutheran church I was pastoring, my wife was the a VBS superintendent that year, and she had ordered the VBS material, and when it came, she opened the box and began to look through it. And she came to me and she said, we can't teach this. And I said, why not? She said, it's evolution, it's not creation. Because the theme was on creation, but it was teaching evolution. And I looked at it, and sure enough, I packed it all back in the box, sent it back to the bookstore, and I wrote a letter, and I told them why. You see what was happening? Well, the event of that meeting with the pastors and that problem with the VBS material, all of that began the process of disillusion that eventually culminated in our transition into the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And what this illustrates is that the authority of the Word of God, the Bible, is still the central issue for the Christian church after 500 years. It's still the issue. And it's the issue for us. My, I have a Lutheran pastor friend. In fact, he was, he was the man I succeeded in my first Lutheran parish, which was in the UP. Trout Creek, Painesville, and Ewan. His, his name is Leslie Neamey. We visited him on Thursday as we came up here. But uh, a couple of years ago, he sent me a copy of the latest biography of Martin Luther. It was titled Martin Luther, Visionary Reformer. And <clears throat> I read it, of course, and I was struck by this statement by the author. He says, the cause of the Reformation turned out to be momentous in a way that neither Luther nor Staupitz, Staupitz was the Roman priest that was a, the head of the monastery in which Luther was a monk. He says, the cause turned out to be momentous in a way that neither Luther nor Staupitz could imagine a cosmic contest between Christ 
and the devil to be settled on the last day, unquote. What does that sound like? The great controversy. That sounds like a Seventh-day Adventist statement. In the latest biography of Luther, written by a Lutheran. Anyway, I'm, uh, we need to ask, what, what is the mission of the church? And Jesus, speaking to his disciples, made it absolutely clear. <clears throat> Matthew 28, verse 18, And Jesus came and said to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There is the Trinity teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Where were they to go? All nations, everywhere, the whole earth, all people. And do what? Make disciples. How? By teaching and baptizing. Teaching what? Everything that he has commanded. And when he said, I have commanded, he was referring to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, the Apostle Paul put it this way. If you want to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul put, this, put it this way to young Timothy. Verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching or doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, Fulfill your ministry. There it is. That text was read at both of my ordinations. Ah! When I was ordained into the Lutheran ministry, and then when I was ordained at Pioneer Memorial Church into the Adventist ministry, by the way, Elder Pearson, who was president of the General Conference, ordained me. Preach the word, the scriptures, the truth. It's been ringing in my ears ever since. Because I have been ordained twice, I've tried to... Uh, Convince the brethren that I should get double salary and <laughs> and double vacation, but they but they say that no, it doesn't mean that. It means you have to do twice as much work. And notice that Paul says, "Reprove and exhort," and not only that, but he says, "Rebuke." Well, you can get into trouble rebuking. But there it is. How do you do that? How, do you do, how does a preacher rebuke? 
by preaching the Word. The Word does the rebuking, not the preacher. The power is in the Word, not in the preacher. Preach the Word. in patience, and in love. Nothing else. That's our duty. That's our calling. That's our ministry, our mission, no matter what, whether it's popular or not. We are called to do it consistently. And the Lord told me that twice when I was ordained, both as a Lutheran and then as an Adventist. It's been ringing in my ears. And we are to do it without deviation, without compromise of biblical principles for the sake of peace. Why? Because as Ellen White says, listen to these words. We must often proclaim a message that is directly in opposition to the people's sins, prejudices, and customs. Or you could say culture of the times. That's from the Review and Herald, July 24, 1894. So why in the context of this solemn charge in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, why does Paul say, as for you, endure suffering? It's because there is a price to pay for faithfulness to God's word, to his will, to his truth. You know, today we hear an awful lot about justice and fairness and so on. There is nothing unjust or unfair about the truth, keeping the truth, obeying the truth. It's called faithfulness. Compromising the world. No, I want to repeat also something else here. She says, it's too costly to make peace with the world by giving up the principles of truth. Too costly. Let the followers of Christ settle it in their minds that they will never compromise truth, never yield one iota of principle for the favor of the world, unquote, from the same source. Review and Herald, July 24, 1894. Compromising the word of God is not the way to finish the work. Did Paul himself pay a price? Yes, he did. If you open to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, We'll let him tell it in his own words. As we look at the mission of the church and the times in which we live, let us be confident. Oh, excuse me, I'm getting ahead of myself. I want to read that text first. 2 Corinthians 11, 24 to 28. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. 
on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, listen to this, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now, as we look at the mission of the church and the times in which we live, let us be confident that, as Ellen White says, the church may appear as about to fall, but it does not fall. In other words, God is going to preserve it. It remains. None but those who have been overcoming by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony will be found with the loyal and the true. Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 380. The church will remain true to the word of God. But that will not happen without the word of their testimony. Who was she addressing that to? When you read it now, today, who is she talking to? Me. You. The current disciples, members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. That's who she's speaking to. And she says that it is the very struggle for biblical faith that makes the church strong. She says, the remnant that purify their souls by obeying the truth gathers strength for the trying process. Same reference. Now today we are hearing appeals for unity. Isn't that so? And we all know that unity is essential in order to finish the mission that we have been given. And let me borrow a metaphor here and say, yes, we have to sing in harmony. That is, we have to be in agreement in thought and action. But in order to do that, in order to sing in harmony, we have to sing in unison. which means that we have to sing the same song, with the same sound and the same pitch, with our eyes fixed on the director, capital D, and the musical score as it was written by the composer. No choir can sing in harmony, in unison, apart from unity. If each member of the choir or segment, such as tenors or sopranos, does not sing the same music, the result is discord and disharmony. Isn't that true? And then, also, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, speaking of himself as a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God, the Apostle Paul made it very clear, as he says, that it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. Now, a steward is one who takes care of something, who cares for and protects and guards 
A steward is one who can be depended on to stay true to the word of God. And then he says in verse 6 of that passage, I have applied all these things to myself and to Apollos, his companion, for your benefit, that you may learn, listen, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written in here. Any student of the Reformation knows that Martin Luther was heavily influenced by the letters of Paul and that he drew theological and doctrinal knowledge from those, those letters as well as personal faith and the kind of courage and spiritual strength that was needed at times of crisis. It was the words of Paul that changed Luther. By the way, he's still one of my heroes. I was so thankful when I read those chapters in Great Controversy on the Reformation by Ellen White. So the words of Paul changed Luther and through him they changed the course of history and the world. And you and I would not be here today preaching, teaching, believing the gospel of salvation by grace through faith were it not for the words of Paul and Luther's response to those words. Words that were heard by a simple monk who was sincerely trying to do everything that he thought was necessary to be accepted by God. Luther had a very sensitive conscience. He was very much aware of sin. And he even went so far as a monk of beating himself with a whip. because of sin. But his efforts did not satisfy him. He still felt this terrible burden of guilt and sin. And he used to, as a monk, he used to go to confession to another priest many times a day. Not just once a week or once a day, but many times a day. Sometimes he would, he would spend the whole night on his knees, crying out to God, confessing his sin. But it did nothing. All of his efforts. Until he heard Romans 3, verse 24 that he was justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That is sola gratia. By grace alone are we saved. But before he could hear that, he had to hear something else. He called it sola scriptura, the Bible alone, as the source of truth for faith and life. Did you know at that time the Bibles that were in the church were chained to the lectern and the average church member didn't have access to it? One of the greatest things of the Reformation was when Gutenberg invented movable type and printed the first Bible, and they began to get it into the hands of the lay people. So everything doctrinal and experiential 
depends on and derives from sola scriptura. But the, unfortunately, the medieval church never accepted that, insisting that the tradition and the power of bishops are equal to the Bible, if not superior to the Bible. In other words, the authority of the church above that of the word. And 500 years after Luther, some Protestants are giving lip service to sola scriptura. Even abandoning it altogether in favor of what are called felt needs and the pressures and demands of culture. And that has culminated in a, in a recent declaration, by a, it's a joint declaration by both the Vatican and the Lutheran World Federation, which is the umbrella that covers all of the Lutheran churches in the world, declaring that the Reformation was a mistake and only the opinion of one man which is nonsense because when you study Reformation history, Luther wasn't the only one. There were many reformers. And the, that declaration also says the Reformation is over. Is that why many Lutheran churches today aren't celebrating the Reformation anymore? Of course, that was inevitable. It's prophesied. On October 31, 2016, two years ago, the Pope and the Archbishop of the Lutheran Church of Sweden conducted a joint service in a Lutheran cathedral in Sweden. That would have been unthinkable even 50 years ago. But to abandon sola scriptura is to abandon the Reformation, you see? And I wonder, is that why my friend Professor Kukkonen said to me that the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America is a Christless church. Disconnecting Old and New Testament law from the gospel, and even in some cases insisting, and be careful of this one, that the Holy Spirit is doing new things in the church today, in our time. Putting the authority of the Spirit above that of the written word. You see, part of our mission as Seventh-day Adventists is to draw attention once again to Paul's and Luther's reverence for and reliance upon the scriptures. Paul begins his letter to the Romans by calling attention in the first chapter, verse 2, to the holy scriptures. Dealing with justification, he asks... Chapter 4, verse 3, what does the scripture say? And then he says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What was counted to him? His belief in God. 
In chapter 9 of Romans, verse 6, Paul calls Scripture the Word of God. In making clear that there is no distinction between Jew and Greek with regard to salvation, Paul says in chapter 10, verse 11, the Scripture says, everyone who believes in him, in Jesus, will not be put to shame. And in chapter 11, verse 2, he underscored that, quote, God has not rejected his people, the Jews. And then he asks, do you not know what the scripture says? It is in the scriptures that we find hope. Chapter 15, verse 4, Paul says, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Now, he was including the Old Testament in that. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, can you imagine the kind of impact that passages like that had on that pious monk who was kneeling by his bedside during the night, struggling with his guilt and his sin, and finding no relief or assurance from what he was doing, no matter how many times he repented, no matter how many times he confessed to another priest, no matter how many times he was given the absolution, And when it came to the authority that Paul claimed for the preaching of the gospel of the death and resurrection of Christ, Paul said unequivocally, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, that all of that was, quote, in accordance with the scriptures. And speaking further of hope in the context of his ministry, Paul says, and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we'll begin reading it with verse 13, 2 Corinthians 4, 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, and he quotes, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension or comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Grace. A little bit of a footnote here. Grace for the Seventh-day Adventist believer is understood to mean more than the demonstration of God's loving and forgiving attitude towards sinners. For us, grace is his divine power, not just acknowledged forensically, but experientially. It doesn't just change the sinner's standing before God. It changes the sinner inwardly, 
Grace is a word that is habitually used by our evangelical friends who do not understand it as a divine power that operates inwardly. Some, unfortunately, some Seventh-day Adventists have adopted this view of grace, this evangelical view, and so they are unable to experience victory over sin, and they get discouraged and move closer to the evangelical view of grace. I've been told by individuals, don't talk to us about obedience. Don't talk to us about holiness or righteousness. Just tell us how much Jesus loves us. Of course he loves us. He loves us so much he went to the cross to die for our sins. That's not all he did. He sent the Holy Spirit to work inwardly and change us and make us righteous. Not just say we're righteous, but make us righteous. See the difference and how important it is? So whether Paul, anyway, throughout Romans and Corinthians, Paul uses the phrase, it is written at least 13 times. And whether he speaks about his development of the truth, the doctrine, or the development of his own theological thought or addressing issues in the early church, his reference is always to the scriptures, what is written. Now you contrast that with trying to convince the church that the Bible doesn't really say what it says. If I had listened to that kind of argument back in the 70s, I would not be here today. I would have, I would have fled from Andrews University if that's the kind of argument I had heard when I came there. And so no wonder that deeply involved in the organizing of the early church, Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, verse 14, he says, Timothy, as for you, continue in what you had learned, knowing from who you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out or inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man, the messenger of God, may be competent and equipped for every good work. Paul was an example for those like Timothy and Titus and later Martin Luther and others who would take his place as spiritual leaders during a critical period in Christian history. It's on the basis of Scripture alone that both the qualifications for ministry and how the Spirit empowered equipping for ministry is revealed and accomplished. And what an example Paul was. Ellen White says in Acts of the Apostles, page 332, fully convinced of the reality of the truth and trusted to him, nothing could induce Paul to handle the word of God deceitfully or to conceal the convictions of his soul. 
He would not purchase wealth, honor, or pleasure by conformity to the opinions of the world. Though in constant danger of martyrdom for the faith he had preached to the Corinthians, it was in complete harmony with his faith in and reliance on the written word of God to leave as his legacy of apostolic instruction those resounding words already quoted that are read at ordination services. If you were at the ordination service, Sabbath afternoon, you heard those words, preach the word. And so as stewards of the mysteries of God, it is our duty to pay close attention to Paul's charge to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.20. He says, guard the deposit. That is to say, the word of God, the doctrine, the truth. Guard the deposit entrusted to us. Guard it. And concerning truth itself, Ellen White says in Early Writings, page 96, she says that it is straight, plain, clear, and stands out boldly in its own defense. She exhorts all of us, members, pastors, evangelists, leaders, scholars, teachers, to quote, let the plain, simple statements of the word of God be food for the mind, speculating upon ideas that are not clearly presented there is dangerous business, unquote. You don't need a 900-page dissertation to explain what God's word means. And you know, I've been impressed over the years that when you, when you read the history of the founding of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and you, you read about those pioneers that were meeting together and praying and studying the scriptures, who were they? It's interesting when you, when you know who, who they were. There was not one Ph.D. or T.H.D. among them. They were all laymen like you. So let me just very briefly outline for you the, the spirit of prophecy principles of Bible interpretation. It's not complicated. Number one, she says, the Bible is its own interpreter. Number two, she says, take the Bible as it reads. Great Controversy, page 88. Number three, focus on the Bible's plain statements. Review and Herald. January 27, 1885. And she repeats it back then later in 1888. And then number four, explain the language of the Bible according to its obvious meaning. Now what that means, folks, is that you don't need a theologian to interpret the Bible for you. The Bible and you and the Holy Spirit, if you follow those simple rules, you can understand everything. The Bible is its own interpreter. Take the Bible as it reads. Focus on the Bible's plain statements. Explain the language of the Bible according to its obvious meaning.
Listen to this from Paul. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, chapter 6. Now, I know in this first presentation, we haven't spent a lot of time in the Reformation, but what I wanted to do was to put what we're going to be saying this week in its contemporary context so that it is relevant. So now we're going to talk a little bit about the times 500 years ago. Isaiah 60, verse 22 says, the least one, that is to say an insignificant person, shall become a clan, many, and the smallest one, a mighty nation, a movement numbering thousands, and now today millions, over 20 million Seventh-day Adventists. I am the Lord, he says, in its time I will hasten it. I will bring it about. I will hasten it. The Reformation is not over. It was not a mistake. It was just the beginning. And here in one verse in Isaiah, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit allows us a little bit of an insight regarding God's choice of the right time and the right man to make such a powerful impact on the world that it has been felt up to our own day. And I want to even go as far as to say if it hadn't been for Luther and the other reformers, if it hadn't been for what happened 500 years ago, there would never have been a Seventh-day Adventist church either. We, our roots are in the Reformation. Praise God. Luther is still one of my spiritual heroes, in spite of all of his faults. And I'll show you later how, <laughs> how, how he even, believing so thoroughly in the, in the power of the word, how he changed it. I'll show you. Now, why did God choose the period in world history that was known as the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages or the medieval period for that great event of the Reformation? Of course, people who were living then did not call it that. They didn't call it the Middle Ages or the medieval times or the Dark Ages. Later historians, you know, use those labels. And why did he choose the man whose name was Martin Luther to light the flame? What was the world and life like 500 years ago? What was it about that period that in God's timing made what is called the Reformation both necessary and also possible. There is so much historical material. There's no way that, that I could share all of it with you in just five mornings. So we can only summarize and mention highlights. You and I, we live in a time when the world has been getting smaller and smaller. At least that's our perception. I could leave the airport in Ironwood, Michigan in the UP early in the morning and land in Manila in the Philippines by nightfall. That's halfway around the world. 
I can send an email message to you on my iPad that you would get in an instant long before you could arrive where I am. And 500 years ago, the world was a great unknown. People had little contact beyond their immediate neighbors. A hundred miles was a great, great distance. Now you can drive it in your car in less than two hours. But when you travel by foot or on a horse, a hundred miles is a long way. And when Luther was living in the monastery as a monk, he made a pilgrimage from Saxony, Germany, in the year 1511, to the city of Rome in Italy. He was 28 years old when he did that, and that was a long distance. I should have figured it out in miles, but I didn't. How did he get there from Germany to Rome? Couldn't fly, couldn't take a train. Those things were not even dreamed of in those days. That was long before the Industrial Revolution. He walked. Maybe once in a while he was able to ride a horse, I don't know. A long way from Saxony to Rome. 860, yeah, okay, thanks. So one reason why it was called the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages is because a new age was about to dawn. It was happening already. It was called the Renaissance. And life was changing dramatically for the average person. It was an age of discovery. In 1492, Columbus sailed west and discovered the New World. That was a major event in world history. And they, they discovered that the world was much larger than they had ever imagined. It was an age of inventions. The invention of the telescope changed the conception of the whole universe. Copernicus came up with the idea when he invented the telescope and began looking at the stars and so on. He came up with the idea that the earth was a planet that moved around the sun, that the earth was not the center of the universe anymore. The sun was the center and the earth revolved around the sun. Imagine the impact that made on people's minds. In fact, he was even condemned by the church as a heretic for daring to come up with such a revolutionary idea. Gunpowder was invented, which changed warfare. Up until then, when there was a battle fought, it was face to face with swords or maces where you bludgeoned each other to death. And the impact of that can be compared with the atomic weapons in the 20th century, culminating in the atomic bomb drops on Japan in 1945. Terrified people ever since old certainties began to be doubted. People began questioning things, spiritual things as well as physical. There was a, a search for beauty and truth that began. That was a time when artists like Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo appeared on the scene. Study of the ancient Greek classics began. 
and a spirit of criticism began to emerge that could not be contained. And the invention of paper, followed by one of the greatest inventions ever known, movable type and printing, which I've already mentioned. And in 1456, John Gutenberg printed the first Latin Bible. Now that was an event. Because now for the first time in history, people had access to the word of God. But they could now read it and interpret it for themselves. And so the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, was a time of great upheaval. There's a lot more that you can say about it. You know, when you try to imagine what it was like back in those days. There was no industry. Most people were farmers or, or lumberjacks or sewers, seamstresses. People lived off the land. So truly a new age was dawning. And God must have known this is the time. The time was right to put his finger on that little mouth, Martin Luther. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.